Hey, Green Future Growers, welcome to Season 4. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. I'm here to help you create, grow, and enjoy your own organic oasis. I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. This is episode 403 of season four. The amazing Lee Reich came back to talk to us. He has a new book out about growing figs in cooler climates. And lots of people have been talking about figs this year. So I think people will be excited about this. So welcome back to the show, Lee. Good to be here again. Uh, well, in case, because I do have a lot of new listeners in the last year or two, if they haven't heard your first episode with me, do you want to tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I um, I switched into gardening uh, sort of later in life, meaning I was a, a young adult, and I was previously studying something else, and then I decided, I had started to read about gardening, and uh, all of a sudden I decided this is what I want to do, and to make a long story short, I started gardening like a maniac, and then went to graduate school and received a few graduate degrees in agriculture, worked for the USDA, worked for Cornell, and then set off on my own as a freelancer, writing, consulting, and uh, lecturing, and still gardening like a maniac. And I've been doing it after all these decades, still. <laughs> and we talked in the pre-chat, you are in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, um, in case listeners are wondering. And uh, so the Hudson Valley, I'm in Northwest Montana, and so, but our climates probably aren't all that completely different. So, and your new book is about growing figs in colder climates. So tell us about that because um, figs, just fresh figs, there's nothing like a fresh fig compared to like a dried fig that you get in the store. I mean, they're like just a completely different fruit. They're delicious. They're I mean, there's so many things you can do with them. And so if listeners don't know, and they grow on a tree, right? Not a plant, it's a fig tree, but right, they can be yeah. small. Like it seems like my mom brings hers in her house in the winter sometimes. Yeah, fig trees, they're very uh, adaptable plants. It's sort of interesting. Uh, there's one question concerning the book that I can't figure out is why everyone is so enthralled with growing figs. Something about it, there's something... I was thinking maybe because it's such an ancient fruit. It's one of the first fruits cultivated by humans. It's the most mentioned fruit in the Bible. But I don't know. There's something about figs that everybody wants to grow them. And I also am one of those people. As a matter of fact, when I switched into gardening, I knew nothing about gardening. <clears throat> and I, as I said, I entered graduate school in agriculture. And I decided to uh, plant something. And the first plant, and I really did not have a gardening background, the first plant that I grew was a fig tree, and this was in Wisconsin, where it's cold. So, um, so I also fell prey to the fig, and uh, I mean, obviously, one reason that people like it so much is because the flavor, as you said, it's quite different from the dried fig. I also like dried figs, but but it's like a two different fruits: a dried fig versus a fresh figs. And the only I do way too. And like uh, the pizza place near us sells a uh, figalicious pizza where they like marinate the figs in a balsamic vinegar, which is like a whole nother flavor. Right. 
Um, but that's so interesting, your your whole background and that it's the most named one in the fruit in the Bible and just uh I don't know. It just does seem like there's a major resurgence in figs this year. Yeah. And I mean, I, th I think always it was, it's like, it's just, and the, the, and the nice thing about figs, even though they come from, you know, the mid East where, uh, where, you know, it's hot and super hot, super dry in summer and just like a little cool in winter, uh, you would think that it would not be able to grow, say in Montana, in New York or other places where it's cold winters and, it, and it's moister. But uh, there, uh, there's a number of reasons why a fig is such an adaptable fruit plant, and they can be grown. Uh, you know, I've heard people growing them in Scandinavia. You can grow them just about anywhere, and they're easy to grow. So what what makes them so adaptable? Well, just tell us like the beginnings. I don't know. Go wherever you want to go. Well, I'll, I'll give a few reasons. If I, I'll probably forget one or two of them. But what what makes them so adaptable? Uh, one reason is. Um, First of all, they're very um, forgiving plants. You can you can chop back the roots, which means you can grow them in a pot for you can grow them in a fairly small pot for a long time, and they'll and they'll and they'll grow and thrive and bear fruit. So you can cut back the roots. You can bend the stems down. Um, and the nice thing about it is that people often think that they're tropical plants. Figs are not tropical plants; they're subtropical plants. So they can tolerate and actually enjoy a certain amount of winter cold. They're actually cold hardy to about ten degrees Fahrenheit. So, so that's another reason that makes them <clears throat> possible to grow in, over such wide uh, climate range. But one of the most important things, uh, characteristics they have that make them adaptable, is the way they bear fruit. So, if you think about an apple tree or a peach tree or most temperate zone uh, fruits, the way they bear is uh, they'll grow a stem one year, and maybe the following year that stem will bear fruit, or it might take a few years, say in the case of an apple, but in the case of a peach, it'd be the next year. But figs are quite unique in that a stem, there's certain types of figs that on new growth, say a stem starts growing this year and starts bearing fruit that same year. So this means that you can cut back a plant or it could die back to some degree and then new growth will sprout and it'll bear fruit so there's a caveat with that if it gets cut down to the ground the closer it is to the ground uh the longer it takes for the fruit to ripen which means that if say you know a lot of times even where i am where it can get to 10 or 20 below zero if figs are planted in open ground and people sometimes do this with certain varieties that are allegedly super hardy so if you plant it out in the ground, uh, it will die back to the ground by from winter cold, and then it, but it'll re-sprout from the roots because since the soil is warmer than the surrounding air, and those new sprouts might start to form little figs on them, uh, but they won't ripen. So so you have to leave a certain amount of uh, stem growth that will survive winter, and there's various ways to do that, and that's how what I talk about in the book how to how to prune them. Uh, it depends on what kind of cold climate you have, how cold it's going to get, and and also what variety of fig you have, and then there's various methods of pruning and protection that uh, they can employ to really get get fruit pretty much anywhere. Wow, that's awesome! Um, and those are great tips and things to know because sometimes when people like 
prune something and nothing grows, they think, oh, I killed it or something. Right. So it's good to know that it's not that if you prune it close to the ground, you said that it's it might not come back that year or that they have to sprout, but then no, they're not going to ripen. No, if it's pruned to the ground, it will send up new sprouts. They will have fruit developing on those new sprouts. <clears throat> but then you need a long enough season because those fruits will take longer to uh, to uh, ripen. They won't ripen as early as if if they're sprouting from, say, a, a two foot length of trunk that survived winter. So um, so you don't want the plant to die to the ground. So you have so, to, you can you can wrap it. You can you know there's all sorts of things you can do. Where does somebody like can you just buy a fig and put the seed in the ground, or should they like go to like a nursery and get a fig tree, or like where how do you start a plant? So that's another uh, nice thing about the fig trees. Uh, interesting you said that because that reminds me of another another uh, benefit of growing figs. You know, so apple trees, for instance, need cross pollination. You need at least two varieties to bear fruit, and they can get uh, the the blossoms can get frosted. Well, well, fig trees do not need pollen. There's certain varieties of figs that can only be grown in California, or in the, in you know really uh, Mediterranean type climates. But most figs do not need cross pollination. And uh, so their fruits form without pollination. And interesting, the way the, the fruits form is the fruit, it's what most people consider to be the fig fruit. It's called botanically a synconium. And a synconium is basically stem tissue that on the inside has flowers. So if you cut open a fig, you, you know, you could see all these little things that are sort of flower-like. So, so that's that's a nice thing about. It. So you don't start from. You definitely do not start from seeds. The way you get a fig tree is you can go to a nursery or a mail order uh, place, and uh, and get a tree. And the other another night, I keep on touting all these great benefits of figs. But another great benefit of figs is it's very easy to propagate. If you know somebody that has a fig tree, uh, pretty much if you take a stem, uh, and just stick it in the ground, or maybe three stems just for insurance. Uh, you'll probably get a rooted plant. I mean, in in Europe, traditionally, the way orchards were started, they take like a two foot length of stem, which is quite long. You don't have, need it to be that long, and just stick three in the ground wherever they wanted a tree, and then they'd have trees. We well, actually that's there, cool. That reminds me of one other benefit. They also bear really quickly. In my book, I have a picture of a, a Kadota fig uh, stem that I rooted. And it's only in a pot, maybe uh, eight inches in diameter. And the plant, uh, the following season after it rooted was about in the, in the photo, it's about two feet high and it's just figs up and down the stem. So it bears quickly also. So, um, what do you do with your figs? Do you eat them raw? Do you make anything with them? Like what, what do you do with all, how many fig trees do you have? Well, I probably have about uh maybe 20 but fig you know figs it's really funny because as we said that figs are very popular some fig some people go really crazy about figs i mean i know people that have like 200 varieties of figs and the fig has been around for so long you know associated with humans that there's many 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 varieties of figs uh, one problem with all the varieties is, you know, as people and the fact that they're so easy to propagate, you know, so somebody say their, their grandfather moved from Italy uh, to New York and he brought a, a fig stem and now he has a fig tree and they didn't know the name of it in Italy. 
or maybe they forgot the name. And then so people just start making up names for figs. So often a given variety might have about like five, ten or more names. But um, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Um, well, if I was going to go to my regular questions, normally I would ask, like, tell us about your very first gardening experience. Like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Who were you with? And what did you grow? Uh, well, I, I'd say my very first gardening experience was when I was very young, you know, maybe five years old or, or less. We did have a, a vegetable garden. This was a suburban, uh, one of the suburbs outside New York City. We had a vegetable garden. And the main thing I remember as far as gardening was uh, my father handing me this shovel, which was taller than me, and uh, suggesting that I turn over the soil. <laughs> and I remember I could not get the shovel into the ground. It was, it was, the soil was too hard, you know, I could stand on it or whatever. So that wasn't all that positive, although I did really enjoy eating the vegetables from the garden. And then, uh, for <laughs> I can some reason- totally picture you there with a yeah. shovel over your head. For some reason in high school, I, um, I think it was in high school or junior high school, I had this grow light. I, I guess I was always gravitating towards science. So that seemed very scientific to have a purplish glowing, a grow light and I had one in the basement and for some reason I had a hyacinth bulb and a banana tree under that light. I have no idea what possessed me to do that. <laughs> and uh, and that was pretty much my gardening experience until I was in my early 20s when I really started reading about gardening a lot. And then, uh, and then as I said, went to graduate school. I, my first graduate degree was in soil science and, uh, and my first garden started at the same time where I uh, started a vegetable garden and really gardening like a, like a madman ever since. And I, and I did have a lot of um, uh, good input. First of all, I had access to one of the best agricultural libraries in the country across the street from where the uh, building that I was uh, taking classes in. So I read an awful lot about uh, gardening. I used to just go up and down the shelves, just reading everything. And then I visited a lot of uh, well-known gardeners in the at the time. It was a lot different then. This was well before email. And I, I just remember, I don't know if anybody's familiar with uh, the name Scott Nearing. He was uh, sort of a back to the lander in the early was 70s. Was it Scott and Helen? Yep. Yeah. So I just, uh, I don't think I contacted him. I think I just popped in at their place. I drove a thousand miles from Wisconsin to Maine and just popped in there. And there were other people there too and spent some time there. And that was a, a great influence, you know, practical influence besides, you know, my schoolwork of gardening. And then when I was there, I remember one afternoon I was uh, taking a nap in my van because uh, we would work only in the morning and there's somebody knocked on the window and, and this guy says, uh, you know, he was about uh, in his thirties with a big shock of uh, sort of gray hair already. But he said, um, you want to help out in the garden? And this was, I guess, Scott and Helen's neighbor. And I said, okay. And that was Elliot Coleman. So then I spent, uh, who was also- Oh my gosh. Is, an, is you know, one of the uh, foremost vegetable gardeners. Sure. In the and uh, so I spent a lot of time with him and uh, it was really quite formative. I feel like I was very lucky to have, by chance, I, I, it doesn't seem like I did anything that deliberately, but maybe I forgot that part of it. 
I think just like that, the fact that you were willing to drive that far to the nearings and like show up and then be willing to help out and learn and probably your curiosity, you know, they knew that you were obviously serious about it and just wanting to share um, your passion and, and learn from their passions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed that I did that also. I actually, I actually visited them 10 years later after I'd been gardening as I keep on saying, like a madman, very intensively for 10 years. And also had uh, three graduate degrees in agriculture. So I had some, uh, you know, some theoretical base then, but I visited the nearings again. Uh, they had moved to their new house, which was only, uh, you know, very short distance from their old house. And uh, it was interesting because uh, that time, my second visit, I did have a lot more gardening and knowledge under my belt. And, uh, and the first time there was quite a few other people there doing sort of what I did. The second time I was the only person there. It was, it was a little awkward, but I had a long, nice long talk with Scott Nearing at the time. So I find, feel like I was very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my friend Kavita is the one that told me about studying under the Nearing's crew and her husband have, um, they run Hindu hillbilly. They have beehives <laughs> down in, um, southwest montana like kind of we went to college together and then uh she got married and started her family and they ended up going into uh the honey business but i like when i interviewed her i could swear she's the one that told me about helen nearing and that yeah. was where she learned all of her soil um science from that's so fat like what are like i i did, can't even imagine like you get three degrees and and uh three graduate one. degrees well, I was lucky because as an undergraduate, I was a chemistry major and actually was in graduate school in chemistry for a while, which is really a good foundation uh, for soil science. And uh, and it was just by chance I happened to get into that department. I, basically, I was looking for uh, what, what to study in, in agriculture and the head of the soil science department, he says, you should join our department. So I did. He said, join, join our department. And then uh, with my girlfriend, we were going to go to travel Europe for two months. He says, join the department, go to Europe for two months. And when you come back, we'll have a job for you. So there was an offer I couldn't refuse, but I was lucky. And then after that, I decided uh, soil means a lot of things. It, um, it can be engineering uses of soil, you know, waste disposal. And I was really interested in the horticultural part. So then I got a graduate degree in horticulture after that. Sweet, you got a job before you got your degree? How does that work? That's yeah, awesome. That was, it was uh, as a graduate student, I did research at, at that time. And in certain fields, uh, when you go to graduate school, you get paid to do research. Because uh, later I worked for the USDA uh, when I was working on my doctorate degree. And I got to work at one of the best USDA facilities in the country. And they paid me uh, well, to do research for my degree. Hey, listeners, there might be some soil people out there wondering, what should I get into? Well, generally, uh, might be generally an option. The, yeah, generally in the sciences, I think this is still true. Uh, you get paid to do research. Well, that's what like the whole Big Bang Theory is based on. You know, those guys are all, I mean, they're studying physics, but basically that's why, you know, and the president, I don't know if you've ever watched that show, The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I, um, I saw part of it once yeah it's like this comedy about these four yeah. scientists and then their neighbor their blonde neighbor next door who wants to be an actress and uh but it's just but that's where their whole you know their whole thing is based on 
they get paid and the president of the university is always like i'm here to make you guys happy and to make your lives easier and what can i do to serve you and um not that they don't have their challenges and the human resources lady right. and, and whatnot yeah. but uh anyway off topic so um tell us about something that grew well this year the how big is your place again did i ask uh, you that two and a quarter acres two and a quarter acres yeah and what grew well in your two and a quarter acres? This, what do you plant there besides fig trees? I plant uh, just about every fruit, uncommon and common fruits that you could think of. I have two vegetable gardens, a greenhouse, and I also grow a lot of nuts and, you know, some ornamental plants. It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> how, how, like, I guess we have two vegetable gardens. I mean, my husband has like what I call the mini farm and then we have like vegetable beds closer to the house. Is that kind of like what yours is like if you have two vegetable gardens? Well, no, mine was, I used to have only three quarters of an acre and that's that's when I called it a, a garden because, you know, it was something like any, you know, pretty much very manageable by even somebody that wasn't crazy about gardening like I was. But then I had, I got an opportunity to buy the acre and a half uh, field next door and that's when I changed the uh, what I called my property from a garden to a farm den, because instead of planting, uh, say, you know, like, um, I, so I grow hardy kiwi vines. So instead of having two hardy kiwi vines, which I own three quarters of an acre. Also, since I write about gardening and I also use this for workshops, the site. So I planted 20 hardy kiwi vines you know, and, and then I planted like a bunch of chestnut trees. So I figured that was more than, you know, your average garden. This is like, uh, getting a little crazy but it's a lot of fun so um so that's when i expanded oh and so originally i had a, a vegetable garden and then uh then i just planted another vegetable garden for more vegetables and then i put up a greenhouse too and you're growing kiwis also in upstate new york yeah you could grow them hardy kiwi fruit they're they're hardy to uh, 30 below or less and they taste wow. really really good I wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called Uncommon Fruits Worthy of Attention. And then I rewrote it uh, with some new fruits and other updated information, Uncommon Fruits for Every Garden. Now it's out of print, but it's gonna be back in print soon. And uh, and I, so I planted a lot of those fruits too, just to see how they would grow. And so I could you know study them more. I wonder if I can get that at the library because Fruit is like something I'm definitely trying to eat more of this year. And I am struggling so hard. I can't get my blueberries to take off. I can't grow a blueberry no. for the life of me. I struggle with strawberries. We do pretty good with raspberries. Um, well, blueberries. We have lots of fruit trees. We did good with plums this year. We usually get a lot of apples. Um, but if we could grow some other fruits, that would be awesome. Blueberries are actually my specialty, and I would say the, the key to growing blueberries, one of the keys, is uh, the soil has to be right. And uh, and it's not hard to do on a garden scale, especially, but, but if you don't get the soil right, they don't grow well, and if they don't grow well, they don't bear well. And blueberries are one of the fruits that I grow <clears throat> that every single year, no matter what, whether it's been, uh, you know, late frost, you know, early frost, uh, various insects, various diseases around. Uh, I've never, ever not gotten a full crop of blueberries. But, and I should also point out that blueberries were the subject 
of uh, when I was getting my doctorate degree, I was studying blueberries. It was on uh, my dissertation was on blueberries. Crazy. So, oh, so because, like, I know you need to have like, it's acidic soil, right? Like I, might, I want my pH to be closer to a 4.5. And that's totally my problem. My bed where I have them in is like an 8.3. Well, that, that so I've been trying to lower my pH. And what, do you, what are you using to lower it? This year, I finally bought um, like a hydrangea acidifier, I think it is, like a spoma. Right. But even cheaper, and maybe it's the same stuff, uh, uh, pelletized sulfur is what you need. And basically, it's just naturally mined sulfur that's in the form of pellets, so it's easier to spread. Uh, but the thing is, when you have a soil that uh, alkaline, it might be hard to even with that bring it down. What, what I would recommend is you excavate, uh, say, like a, a, foot, a foot and a half or a foot deep hole and maybe three feet wide and take out all the soil and fill it with a mixture of like peat and some sandy soil that's not high pH and that's and then plant the blueberries in that. That's what I've been thinking is that I just need to start over in a totally different bed. Well, you got you got to take away the existing soil and, and sort of make a soil. And take a peat in the sandy soil. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, because uh, I even bought three new blueberries last year, and the only one that was doing anything at the end of the summer was the one that was still in the bucket it came in that I never planted in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and all yeah. the ones in the ground just basically died. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's really a, a soil problem. I mean, even if they survive, they won't grow enough to, to bear well unless they, the soil's right. But, yeah. uh, you, but you did ask what... Um, you know what grew well this year and of all i've been here for uh, over 30 years at the same site and of all the play of all those years i've been here this has been the best fruit year ever and i don't where, where i am unfortunately it's a, a valley so it's not a particularly good area for fruit growing but but this year amazing and it wasn't just me throughout the northeast i think everybody had a really good fruit year. why do you think that was the you weather know, people always ask me that you know this year and I keep on thinking, well, I can make up like a lot of reasons that, because first of all, we had a nice, uh, w gently warming spring with no late frost. You know, the weather was a little weird, but uh, I, I really don't know exactly what it is. But whatever it was, it was a confluence of events. And I hope it happens again and again, because because I really do like fruit. And, uh, and we had so much this year. That's awesome. We had like, oh, our spring was um, super dry. Just, we didn't get rain until, oh, I want to say almost August. Like we we had late snow, late cold, late freeze. And then, right. so we had a really tough year in Montana. That sounds awful. But uh, um, you must have uh, drip irrigation or no? No, we need drip irrigation. We do not. Right. That, that would help a lot. I mean, I, I even, I don't irrigate my fruit trees. I just, the only thing I irrigate is my vegetable garden, but, uh, but I'm you don't good. irrigate your fruit trees at all. Nope. Well, I live in the humid Northeast where yeah. we get rainfall of about, you know, 45 inches per year and, and pretty much four inches a month. 
I mean, we do have droughts, but, you know, drought for us is not, you would not consider it to be a drought. Yeah, we, we, it's very dry where we are and we don't have a lot of water. It's amazing. My husband grows as much food as he does. Yeah. I mean, the, so, uh, I mean, we have uh, groundwater, you know, if I did need water, I can, we have a well that I can just, uh, you know, our, our house is fed. We get our water from a, a well and, uh, you know, the well has never gone totally dry. No, we have two wells and they alternate going dry. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, we're we're in a tough area where we are. Anyway, Lee, tell us, um, is there something you're excited to try different next year that you haven't tried before or something new? Well, one thing about the, my fig growing, so in, in the book, I mentioned five different ways of uh, growing figs in cold climates. Mm -hmm. In the epilogue, so this is something I haven't, you know, tried enough long enough where i can say it um you know this is this will definitely work but i've been trying to come up with ways of growing figs outdoors easily even in here where it can get down to 20 below zero and i am trying uh, i don't know if you're familiar with with espaye you familiar with that it's it sounds really familiar yeah it's training trees to sort of a, a geometric or a very uh you know uh, training the branches to a certain pattern that can be decorative. Usually it's two dimensional. Like a lot of times you have flat trees against a wall or that, or trees can make a fence and it's uh, generally used, you know, not used only on, on fruit trees, but on fruit trees, it's particularly nice because uh, you get a lot of good air circulation, a lot of uh, sunlight shining on all the branches. So you can get very high yields of very high quality fruit. So I was trying that. So in my greenhouse, I grow some figs, and I have all the figs in my greenhouse trained as espalier. Uh, one of them, for instance, is a trunk about uh, maybe 18 inches high, and then two permanent arms that go horizontally in opposite directions. And then all the new fruiting shoots grow vertically off those arms. And every year, it's very easy to prune. I just cut them down to the uh, permanent arms. And then next year they should grow up again. So it's very easy to prune. So I was thinking, so one way to grow figs outdoors in cold climates is if you protect the fig by covering it, or sometimes what people do is they bend the branches down to the ground, <coughs> which, which is uh, fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little, uh, you know, some effort to do that. So my idea was to train it as a very low SBA, just like I do in the greenhouse, right along the ground. And then I can easily just cover it with something. I could put like a, a like the tunnels that I use in my vegetable garden, uh, hoops of wire with plastic over it. I could put that over it. Sure. And then, and then maybe some leaves. So, th so I've actually did it last year and it seemed to work pretty well. So I'm going to do it this year and I'm going to do it with more plants. That sounds so cool. And like, so you're saying like some people make a fence out of like living trees? Oh, yeah. Oh, that sounds really cool. And, then, you know, there's all sorts of designs you can use. It doesn't have to be just, you know, a horizontal branch with stems coming up. Sometimes there's one that's called a Belgian fence where the adjacent trees are woven together. I love that idea. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of SYA. Actually, I wrote a book uh, on pruning. And the last chapter in the book, I have a whole chapter on uh, SYA. Cool. I'll have to check that out, too. Yeah, it's, um, really, it's really good for some fruits. For instance, I have some Asian pears that I grow, which I highly recommend. They're very easy to grow. Even here, where I, I mean, I always get a good crop of Asian pears, and I train them as an SYA along the top of a rock wall that I made. And it looks cool, and it looks really uh, cool when, when there's fruit all along the branches. Hmm. I love pears. That sounds really cool. Uh, tell us about something that didn't go the way you thought it was going to. Well, interestingly, and once again, I'm not sure why, is tomatoes didn't grow this year that well. And I'm not sure why. And other people, once again, this is not just my garden, but here in the Northeast, uh, a lot of people's tomatoes didn't grow. I mean, they didn't grow poorly. We got enough tomatoes, but they didn't grow really well that we could have given the way other things bore. Uh, you know, we could have had a lot more tomatoes. And I think that, that is was, interesting because tomatoes are really a fruit, right? Yeah. And they're right. But it was actually it depends if you, uh, uh, legally they're a vegetable, but botanically they are a fruit. But, uh, but other things, you know, closely related to tomatoes, say, is uh, eggplant and uh, peppers. They did really well. Just tomatoes, for some reason, didn't do well. That's what I was wondering. Because last year, I had a really good year of tomatoes and peppers. I didn't grow any eggplants, so I don't know how they would have done. But um, that's interesting that you guys had kind of the opposite of what we had. Yeah. Well, most years, the peppers, I, pretty much every year I get good crops. And tomatoes. You know, usually I get a good, there actually have been some years where, uh, you know, various blights come in, uh, but, you know, we always get enough tomatoes, but, but last year was surprisingly, maybe it's just surprising because other things did so well. Could be. So Lee, this is the part of the show I call getting to the root of things. So do you have, um, like a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Something you got to force yourself to get out there and do? Yeah, that's a very easy one, spraying. So I grow uh, things mostly organically, but even organically you do sometimes have to mix up a spray, you know, say for yeah. uh, cabbage worms, I uh, mix a spray uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a naturally occurring bacteria that really does target the cabbage worms. Uh, so, you know, it's not the end of the world to have to spray, but it's just not that much fun to like mix it up, to spray it. And then even though it's non-toxic, you know, I don't want to get it on stuff nearby that I'm going to be right. eating away. So that, that would definitely be my least favorite. Uh, anything else? Uh, I guess everything else I pretty much like doing. And something. How about on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do? Well, one of my favorites is making compost. Uh, I make Me a lot too. of compost. I make, uh, so I have these, these uh, compost bins that really uh, work out well that I made. And um, I make about 12 tons a year by hand. And, uh, and then I have to find a place to put Holy them. Oh, cow. That's a lot of compost. Yeah, what are you I putting in your compost? Well, I put in, first I have a, a part of that acre and a half that I got next door <clears throat> is just a hay field now. I mean, it's not a hay field. It's, it's just a, a weedy field that grows high, which I like because it's got a mixture of, of different things in it. So that's good. You know, a lot of different 
nutrients in means there's going to be a lot of different nutrients in the compost. So I use a scythe and I cut little portions of it, uh, use a lot of that in the compost. And then I add all kitchen waste. I add some horse manure that I can get. Uh, there's an excess of horse manure. And um, let me think what else. You know, a little lime, a little soil. And, uh, and occasionally I throw in, um, you know, uh, kitchen scraps, stuff like that. And uh, basically anything that is compostable, I put in there. Uh, I, I know I, on my um, videos on my website, I have something, uh, I think I have a thing about making compost. And one of the things I put in there is my old Levi's. I figure they're cotton, so I throw them in there. And it's sort of interesting to see what they look like in various states of decomposition. Uh, throw my old underwear in there if it's cotton. Um, basically, there's like an experiment that people do where they like put their underwear in there and see if, like, right. at the end of the year that they've decomposed, you know, everything but the waistband yeah. should have decomposed. That means you have good soil or something, right? No, I, I, remember, I remember seeing that, and uh, they had it quantitated, I think, so that uh, so that depending on you know how much decomposition you get in so much time, that would mean you have good soil, you know, a biologically active soil versus not. And the, the other thing I put in my compost that people are sometimes surprised. I know, you know, a lot of times people say, well, if you have such and such a problem in your in your garden, say a insect pest or a disease, uh, just, you know, put put the uh, plant in a plastic bag and throw it out. And uh, I sort of disagree with that. And I put basically everything in the compost, diseased plants, insect ridden plants, everything just goes into the compost. Oh, good to know. And it doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, caused a problem. And basically, if you leave it, things to compost long enough, they decompose. So, uh, so that that's my guideline. And uh, also, my compost, I do make them very deliberately. And except for my the ones I make during the winter, they do get quite hot. They get up to about 150 degrees. But even even if your compost doesn't get to 150 degrees, it's some combination of time and temperature. So if you get a really high temperature. You don't have to let it compost that as long to get rid of any pathogens. And if you uh, have a, if you don't get a if you your compost does not get hot, you just leave it longer. And you know basically when it looks all finished, it is done. And that's a science a science specialist telling us that, listener. So <laughs> I'm I'm going to trust your uh, knowledge yeah. and and research. And I and I have done this for for decades and and uh, never. Uh, brought any, you know, really pest problem in my garden. Lee, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Uh, one thing, actually, this is something Elliot Coleman had told me years ago. He said, if you, if you need a certain tool, you know, very specific, and you can't find it, make it which I really like doing is, you know, like I, I wanted to make something for opening up a furrow for beans. And I had this vision that I, I'm sure there's, this, this was somewhere on the market at some point. And I even have a whole book, this giant book of gardening tools and I could not find it. So I just made it out of, you know, these scraps of metal and, and, uh, and a wooden uh, handle. That's awesome. I just did an interview with Josh Volk, who wrote a book about building your own farm tools. That's oh, a really, really good primer. Oh, yeah. Who, how do you spell that name? I'm going to check that out. 
Um, Volk is V O L K. Josh that. Volk. What's his farm? It's called uh, the Slow Hand Farm. <laughs> slow Hand? Yeah, kind of like the, you know, the slow food movement. Yeah. And he doesn't. Is it Slow Hand or is it Slow Food Farm? No. I think, no I'm pretty sure. Hand. I just. Uh, I had all sorts of problems when I was releasing his episode, but uh, yeah, well, I had I'm to like sure. redo the links like three different times. I was so like annoyed. Build your own farm tools. Yeah, well, I'll, slow I'll, hand farm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess the the other thing uh, what was the question the best advice that I received. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, I thought you were going to say the best advice I could give. <laughs> um, I'll take it. I'd say the best advice I could give is uh, two words, organic matter. Uh, make sure you go and have it. it. has lots of organic matter and keep feeding it organic materials so that you get more and more organic matter. I think that goes a long way to, uh, first of all, uh, keep plants healthy because you promote beneficial organisms that are antagonistic to uh, a lot of pathogens. Uh, because it feeds the plants uh, both the organic matter as it decomposes releases nutrients it also helps decompose um, the rock matrix of the soil to release nutrients and it makes some nutrients that are already in the soil more available for instance iron sometimes can be in a soil but not available to plants because of ph or something and and natural organic molecules can make it more available to plants and then an organic matter also uh, makes the soil have better structure, which means it can drain better and uh, drain water out, but at the same time hold moisture for the plants. So that's that's a good promo for organic matter. <laughs> I love that. I'm so into composting, and it just drives me crazy that we don't compost enough in the United States. Right. Um, a, lot of, a lot of problems could be solved with... Uh, more widespread composting. First of all, I mean, in my garden, I actually don't use, uh, in my vegetable garden, I don't use fertilizer anymore. I just use an inch. I made a computation many, many years ago uh, that an inch depth of finished compost will supply all the nutrients intensively cultivated vegetables need for a year. And I, and I was always afraid to do it since I don't have an experiment station. I didn't want to risk my, my, my yields. But then a few years ago, I did it, stopped using any, anything else except for compost. And that's all I've used since then. That's so interesting because like, I was just, uh, I was listening to like this old episode I did or something, or I don't remember, but like a couple of years ago, I planted these zinnias and I was talking about how I always thought because we put compost in the dirt at the beginning of the season, we didn't never need to add it. And I swear, like the zinnias were like smiling at me as I was adding the comp. My husband was like, you need to give them some compost or some food or something like in the middle of the summer. And I was like, I do. Oh, and um, actually, I, I swear they were just smiling at me, but. Uh, actually, I, I disagree. I don't think they needed. I mean, if you put down one inch a year at any time. That should be good for the year. Because that's what I had always thought. Like, as long as you put compost in your soil in the early spring, like before you planted your beds and mixed that in, that that was all your plants were going to need. Well, I'm going to have to do like some kind of an experiment here. Well, it also depends if you, if you put enough down. If you put down a, 
a quarter of an inch. Yeah, that could be it too. Yeah. You could be right an, on there. An inch, an inch is the magic number, about an inch. Um, That could be completely what it was because I'm not very good at doing things like that, like putting, because we always fight about our compost here. Like my husband's like, you should put compost on the compost goes on the vegetables and not the flowers as much. And so um because even though we have like seven different compost bins, we just never have enough, it seems like, for all of what we grow. Yeah. And well, so have, yeah, if you don't have enough compost and you can't put down an inch, you might have to supplement it with some sort of fertilizer. Mm-hmm. The other thing, um, but the other, I love that because I just think compost is so easy to make and it, it's good for everything. It's good for the planet. And have you seen that new Kiss the Ground movie? There's like a book and a movie. And that's basically at the end, that's kind of what the general uh, consensus is, is, I mean, it's compost, it's planting a diverse crops. It's, they've got a few things, but they, they talk about like the biggest solution to climate change is saving our soil. Yeah, and the other, the other thing about the compost, I get uh, a lot of bang for my buck with the compost because I don't dig it in. A lot of people dig it in. I just lay it on top oh. of the ground and plant right in it. Because when you dig it in, you sort of, di well, you do two things. Uh, <clears throat> you dilute its benefit because a lot of the benefits, what it does to the surface makes it more absorbent. And hmm. the other thing, when you dig it in, you uh, add a lot of oxygen to the soil, which actually burns up organic matter. So uh, there's benefits, you know, that's the whole thing, you know, about no-till, which uh, I wrote a book called Weedless Gardening, which that's one of the central themes of it, which, you know, it's not a religion. It's one way to garden, but there are a lot of benefits to it, but it's not, uh, it's not a system that everybody wants to adopt. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, to grow plants, but I, but I think uh, there's, as I said, a lot of benefits to using no-till. And I think some plants do better in a no-till environment than other. Like, it seems like Jesse Frost wrote that book about no-till gardening or no-till farming. He has, like, the no-till gardening podcast. And uh, it seems like he was saying, like, kale, if I remember right, doesn't really matter if you do no-till or not. Like, it's not going to have I, – I could be wrong about that because I read his book last year. But Yeah, I, um, I actually, I actually have, have not tilled any part of my vegetable farm for uh, decades and everything seems to grow fine. I mean, you just look in, I mean, a lot of uh, what I do, and this could be uh, called advice also, is I try and emulate natural systems. Mm -hmm. So in natural systems, the garden is, uh, the soil is not tilled. You know, roots obviously uh, do something to the soil and, and, and earthworms and other creatures, but it's not, you know, tilled like as you would till with a rototiller and, and plants do fine under those conditions so that's that's what i'm trying to emulate sure well and you are definitely growing a ton of things and and have like so much experience so one thing you kind of like wrote in the answer thing was something about strawberries and grubs oh yeah that did was, you want uh, to talk about that yeah I could, that that was sort of advice that i was given um that i was going for my first garden, and as I said, I didn't know hardly anything about gardening then. And uh, so I wanted to plant strawberries, as a lot of people do. And, and and I was making the garden from what was lawn. I was just going to turn over the soil and, you know, the usual traditional way of starting a garden. And I had read in a lot of gardening books 
that uh, you should not plant strawberries in newly um, in a new garden because grubs are often in lawns and because they eat lawn grass and if you plant, plant strawberries they're apt to eat your strawberry roots so it's advisable not to plant them uh, under those conditions and once again this was <laughs> this was actually when I visited Elliot Coleman I had told him then he said just go go ahead and plant it it's like what's the worst worst case scenario is you know you lose 25 strawberry plants um so you know i went ahead and planted it and actually i never had any problem with them so uh you know i guess i would say on the one hand it's good to follow advice you know uh like of don't plant strawberries and in, in recently turned over lawn. on the other hand it's good to try try something anyway so i'm not sure what the advice would be except that it was good that i tried it yeah, to just keep trying things. I like that. Well, the problem is, the problem is, people. If you do that too much, you you end up reinventing the wheel. It's like people have tried, done certain sure. things in the garden, and they've failed or they've succeeded. So you don't you don't have to do a test to see if this is going to happen because you can sort of go by other people's experiences. That that I think was one reason early on my garden actually was quite good. Um, you know, even after just a, a year or two of gardening. And one reason was because I, not not because any genius on my part, it's just because I read a lot of books and you read a lot of books, you get advice from people who've done this already and I didn't have to repeat what the same mistakes. I and mean, we could all keep making the same mistakes, just, you know, but, or we could read about mistakes that people made or, or advice that people give and follow that. But- uh, Well, one thing people, like, I think, a lot of new gardeners, like people like me, like since my podcast started, I've become a much better gardener because of my amazing guests, just like you. Like I had so many failures and was just like, I can't grow anything and I have a brown thumb and I don't know how to do this. And then the more you, I would listen to things and hear the same things, um, the more like the more confident I've gotten and the more successes I've had. I mean, the fact that I'm growing enough tomatoes and canning my own tomato sauce and salsa, like, that's something I never would have thought I could do five, six years ago. Or like now, I mean, I feel like if I had to, I could feed a classroom full of kids and grow enough food to, you know, I don't want to, that's way too much work. But if, you know, if like something happened and I was stuck in that situation, like just from listening to my guests so that I think that's kind of like along the same thing, like you can pick up um, different tips, but it is always good to, you know, try things. I mean, just even like the figs that you're talking about growing figs in different places because people might think oh figs are from italy or the mediterranean they're never going to grow here or kiwis like kiwis i thought were like a total like new zealanders you know somewhere warm tropic type of i would not think that kiwis would ever grow no i, I get i get big crops every year but i guess that the thing is that nowadays especially with the internet there's a lot of misinformation around. So the hard part yes. is the hard part is sifting out if if you read something and you want to follow it, you have to think, you know, because you don't want to you want to uh, learn from their experience. I mean, employ their experience in your garden. Uh, so the hard part is uh, always figuring out is this reputable information? Does it so so the way I go about that is first of all, I, you know, based on what I know about gardening and science, I first want to see if it sounds like it, it's, uh, you know, does it make sense? 
because a lot of things people say just don't sure happen. and there's no reason to try it or even go one step further and then to and to then to look at who's offering the information i mean sometimes you can tell just uh, this this is a wacko source of information uh and sometimes it seems like a reputable source of information so you, and then you put all that together and decide whether or not this is something you can follow and i think some of the best information you get from your neighbors and like people that are growing in your area like i would never have thought of trying blueberries if i hadn't gone over to my neighbors one day and saw her amazing giant blueberry plants and i think that's part of what keeps me trying it is because i know she's growing them just not very far away from me um and she said she just went to lowe's and got two plants and stuck them in the ground now she is an amazing gardener and her whole place is just you know like this beautiful mix of flowers and vegetables and fruits and you know it's like a giant oasis so i think but anyway got, i think you got to pin her down and ask her really exactly what she's doing <laughs> i know but she's super busy i've been asking her to come over the last two summers and like give me or i should just go there anyway lee how about a favorite tool that you like to use if you had to move and can only take one tool with you what would it be or what could you not live without that's a tough one one tool i mean i guess if it was one tool which this would never be the case i'd always like smuggle some more out if i had to but uh <laughs> I, I like i don't know if you're familiar with the hori hori knife do you know this so I like, do. I finally got one for my husband for his birthday last year, and then I made him get me one for my birthday. Right. That's that's what always happens. You get one, and then you always get more. So I have like one on on one garden gate, one another garden gate, one in the greenhouse, mm -hmm. and one in my mudroom. So hori hori knife would be one. But I have to mention other favorite tools. I think a pitchfork is definitely good, especially if you're going to be moving a lot of organic materials, which, as I said, I think are, are pretty integral to good gardening. So I love a pitchfork. Something that's not that integral, but is one of my favorite tools is a scythe. I mean, a good, uh, what's called a European style scythe is a great thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a good pair of uh, uh, hand shears for, for pruning. And uh, my favorite uh, type generally, I have, uh, I, when I wrote my book on pruning, all these companies were sending me samples. So I got to oh. try a lot of different pruning shears. And I had would have them all hung up on my mudroom as I went outside, so I could tell which ones were my favorite by which ones I grabbed as I went out. And I guess my all-time favorite is the ARS brand, which a lot of people haven't heard of. And then my two second favorites are Felco, which is very common and a great pruner, and Pika, which is very uncommon. So those. How do you spell are, Pika? Like P E A K. Yeah, P I C A. Oh, P I C A. I'm glad I asked. And then the other tools, you know, if I was going to, you know, if I could throw in a few more, a garden sure. cart. I mean, I really like having a garden cart. Once again, that's good. in Jesse's book, oh, yeah. how to build your own garden cart, because he makes it out of bicycle tires. Oh, you need heavier tires because, because um, my cart can hold 400 pounds. Oh, wow. And uh, actually, there's a whole book that has been written by David Tresimer on building the whole book's just on building a garden cart unfortunately i have three so i'm so it'd be really too uh extravagant for me to start building one now yeah and then there was one other oh yeah and then a good uh tile spade it's like a shovel with a, a long uh narrow blade i mean it's really good for digging up i tend to like plant and dig up trees a lot so 
That's useful for that. Really? I might get one of those for Mike because I've looked at those and I could see him using that. It might be called also a nursery uh, uh -huh. shovel or something like that. I think those would be the essentials. I'm sure I forgot some really just other. Essentials. So to use a garden cart instead of a wheelbarrow, because when I first came up with this question, my first thought was a shovel. And then I decided I could build a shovel. I want a wheelbarrow. Actually, I, I have a wheelbarrow, but I hardly ever use it. Mostly it's because I use, like I use, use the garden, garden cart, cart. hay to the compost, hauling compost to the garden. When I clean up the garden, I have it right next to the garden gate and I just keep piling stuff in it. It's, uh, you know, and just for moving firewood somewhere, it's very useful. Yeah, we bought, I bought two new wheelbarrows last year. So we have three. So we have one for the firewood up the house, one in my garden and one in Mike's mini farm, because I, I feel I, like we're always hauling things. And we're in the Rocky Mountains. Like when Mike first built the mini farm, like this, not the first year, but the second or the third year, I can't remember. He hauled 21 wheelbarrows full of just small rocks out of there before he planted in the spring one year. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one great tip I have if you, if anybody has a garden cart. So garden carts, you know, two heavy duty wheels and can hold 400 pounds. So I had those and one problem with them is the tires are always going flat. Mm -hmm. So it's expensive, but I splurge and I get a uh, solid rubber tires for all of them. And it's really a pleasure not having to uh, fix. And and these, these, they're not bicycle tires. So they're not as easy. No, as I know exactly what you're talking about. They're totally worth every penny. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of like my wheelbarrow that's where i came up with that was because we got a flat tire on our wheelbarrow and we couldn't fix him we were like without a wheelbarrow for like a season and it was driving me insane yeah. you know what i did see on this website it was um am leonard tools because i bought one of their pitchforks and totally fell in love with it and like started mm -hmm. looking and he used a sled for hauling um for throwing like weeds on which yeah. I really liked last year, but I like your garden card idea almost better for throwing. Cause that's like one of my big struggles is always like, if I'm down in the garden and I weed and I, and I pull up like, you know, I start putting them in like five gallon buckets and then I've got like six, five gallon buckets full of, right. weed, which you probably don't have because you're the weedless <laughs> gardener, but. No, 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 it's, um, weed, it's weed less. So I do have weeds, just weed less. Yeah. <laughs> And just, I don't know, we, I always feel like we have these beds that have like gotten away from us that I'm trying to like either, you know, pull things out of or, or um, to like re, to like make into a new bed, like some things have gotten overgrown. Mm -hmm. Anyway, whatever, that sled trip was pretty cool, but I like the garden cart, but you're probably ready to go. So let's just finish up these last couple of questions because we've been talking over an hour already. Uh how about a favorite recipe you like to cook or eat from the garden? Uh, I think I had, I really don't, not, I'm not a great cook only because I- well, What I, about eat? Like, does your wife cook stuff for you or you're like- you know, We both cook, but, uh, but the thing is, I really feel like, uh, I mean, I do cook things, but I feel like if you grow really high quality fruits and vegetables, they don't need hardly any fancy cooking at least. But um, but one thing I do do that uh, using stuff in the garden is I'd make a really good pizza. Mm -hmm. and do you dough, have a good pizza dough recipe? Or well, do you I, buy I, like a pizza actually, dough, like a, a pre-made one? Well, I, I actually never, uh, no, I, ma I make, not, not only do I make my dough, but I grind my flour. I have Ooh. this really nice flour mill. Um, I make two loaves of bread a week, two or three bread loaves a week, 
uh, loaves a week of bread. And uh, obviously when we make pizza, I, I grind the flour and, and um, make a sourdough pizza dough. Mm-hmm. It's really good. My husband bakes our bread too. We really want it. He wants a flour mill really bad. Um, huh? Yeah. Oh, geez. Now I just forgot the name. It's the uh, mock mill. M-O-C-K-M-I-L-L. Okay, cool. I've had, I've had it for, uh, I think, a year and a half now. And I've ground it because uh, I buy wheat in 50-pound bags. And I've gone to, I think, uh, um, almost four bags. So 200 pounds of wheat so far went through that mill. Wow. Good to know. Cool. Yeah, we've been looking for a, a flour mill for a long time. We go through a lot of flour and just it's not that easy to find good organic flour here. This is nice because it's very consistent. I get my uh, my uh, mm-hmm. wheat from an organic grower in western New York and it's the same variety every time. And, you know, I grind it the same way. So so it's very consistent and I and, and I always have it. You know, yeah, they, and once you do that, it's almost like chicken eggs. Like you can't go back the other way. Like nothing tastes as good. Well, especially when the pandemic started, it was hard to get whole wheat, any whole wheat flour. Huh? And I have this. Yeah, milk. and the price of bread is insane. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know how much it costs a loaf of bread for me? Cost uh, sixty cents. Really? I was just asking Mike the other day, how much does bread cost compared to like it's like six dollars, like five or six dollars for a loaf yeah. of bread in the store anymore? And and it's uh unless you look pretty uh, carefully it's not that good no absolutely how about a favorite internet resource where do you find yourself surfing on the web well mostly what i like to do is go to uh either government or university sites for just good solid even if it's not entertaining information and the way you do that uh a lot of people don't know this if you put in your search terms you put site uh Geez, now I forgot what it was because uh, I just type it automatically. Um, you do site colon gov or site colon edu after your search terms, and that'll get you to a, a government or a university site. So that's that's where I go generally. Uh, I would say that's that's my favorite internet resources. That's excellent. Uh, do you have to put like .gov or just .gov? Trying to think of what I do. Uh, I think you just. I usually stuff. put like dot edu or dot gov, but yeah, maybe, maybe it works without it. Yeah, well, there wouldn't be that many sites that would have edu or gov even without the dot. But uh, how about? Oh, go ahead. How about a favorite reading material, like a book or a magazine or anything? Well, of course, all my books. <laughs> uh, but um, reading material. Um, I read a lot of stuff, and uh, um, I guess one of my I, I read very few uh, very few blogs, but um, two of my favorite blogs. One is uh, one called GardenMyths.com. GardenMyths. Yeah, and and it's it's very well it's backed up really well. It's no no statements just thrown out there, and you assume they're true. And the other one is uh, um, awaytogarden.com. Margaret Roach? Yeah. <laughs> I like her. 
Yeah. Um, the first one is Robert, I think his name's Purvis. And it's really, it's really an interesting, good site. And plus, I like, I like busting myths myself. I was actually going to write a book on that once, and he already did write two books, so I don't have to. <laughs> well, that is good, because there are lots of myths out there, like we were talking about earlier. So do you, uh, do you have any, like, business advice or like do you you don't really sell your products at market or anything right i sell a very little just because i mostly just to test market stuff uh you know and that would be locally i don't you know just locally i i sell once a year I, i'm really addicted to uh, propagating plants which leaves me with lots of plants more than i could grow so once a year locally i have a, a plant sale for two and a half hours and it's really sort of fun and people come in like hungry dogs and then I just sell as many plants as I can and then I can start propagating again. Uh, so I like that business model though. <laughs> it's not like I always tell my husband we should just do like spring point, you know, like just yeah. sell the starts because because one in the spring there's more water. Um, you know, cause like I said, we tend to have droughts towards the end of the year. So we use more water and it, I think it'd be easier to just sell the starts. And plus there's not a lot of organic starts, at least there certainly weren't a few years ago for people to yeah. have for a source. So well, that's kind of like the same thing where you're, you're yeah. not having to do business all year round. You're just doing it in the beginning. Well, I know here this, uh, uh selling trans vegetable transplants is very popular. But I don't sell vegetable. I, mostly it's like fruit trees, you know, and use sure. whatever I felt like propagating. And uh, and then the other thing, you know, so so I wouldn't, you know, I don't make a lot of money from that. And I don't care. Uh, mostly, as I said, uh, it's mostly uh, my books and my other writing and my uh, consulting and my uh, lecturing. So Do you want know. to talk about some of your other books really quick and like mention your website and do a little okay. self-promotion? Okay. So the website is uh, www, of course, uh, Lee Reich, L-E-E-R-E-I-C-H.com. And that has a number of things on, including videos, my blog, books, lectures, things like that. And uh, so some of my books, I hope I can remember them all. So one, of course, is the one we, we've talked most about is uh, Growing Figs in Cold Climates. And this, this really does show you how to grow figs in all sorts of cold climates, you know, mountain cold climates, coastal cl cold climates, continental cold climates. <clears throat> Another book of, that I wrote uh, that I mentioned was Weedless Gardening or Weedless Gardening, uh, which uh, mostly focuses on, not mostly, but it has no till in it as one, it's a four step, uh, four part uh, system for uh, making weed problems less and the nice thing about the system is that each part has other benefits in the garden and all the parts when you put them together uh, sort of have a synergistic effect and have um, it's more than the sum of its parts and in that i also have a lot of details on growing vegetables uh, how to grow them uh, specific vegetables i have a whole thing on uh, making or buying compost um, you know cover crops planting trees. So it's more than just, uh, you know, might think what weedless gardening might cover. Another book is the pruning book, which really is basically all you need to know about pruning the tools, how plants re respond to pruning, uh, and then specific categories of plants like shrubs, trees, 
fruits and for the fruits we go uh, plant by plant and then I have special sections at the end special types of pruning where as I said I have SBA and some other types of pruning including scything and uh, and basically in the book it has just about every plant uh, you can think of both tropical uh, temperate and temperate plants and house plants everything of how to how to prune uh, specifically these plants and then I have another book. Uh, oh, the Ever Curious Gardener, which we mentioned. This this really takes some science and applies it in the garden. Like how here's a scientific principle. Here's how you can use it in the garden, and it will make your garden grow better. And it covers everything, like from flavor to soil management to uh, plant names. And uh, I have a book on landscaping with fruit, which is self-explanatory. It's uh, how to use fruit trees as landscape plants. And and in that section, I, I have little details, some details on each type of fruit and how easy it is to grow in various parts of the country, you know, varieties, uh, how, how, how good they are as landscape plants. And uh, let's see, am I forgetting something? Uh, uh, I guess for uh, gardeners in the Northeast, I have a book called A Northeast Gardener's Year that really just uh, month by month, it takes you through the garden with all sorts of topics, you know, flowers, soil management, fruit trees, rocks, plant labels, every topic you can imagine uh, through the year. So it's not the kind of book you read from cover to cover. It's a kind of book you read just like say before you go to sleep at night or you leave this book in your bathroom uh, to read, just you, you dip in and out of it. And I think that's the main books that I have. Yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. Me, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And I wish we could talk longer, but I had to go yeah. to work and tutor a kid. So, <laughs> um, and just, uh, we love your passion. So everybody go to his website get his books leave him a five-star review on amazon after you're done reading his books because you know you're <laughs> going to love them and learn a ton and that will help other listeners get out there and other readers um find them because that's what's important that we're sharing this information and teaching our neighbors as well as ourselves so thank you so much and i will send you the link when this comes out okay and thank you so much for having me oh thanks lee you have a great day bye, bye. Speak directly to the green organic gardener podcast Help pay for things like just hosting the MP3 files, maintaining the website. You know, I don't mind doing the work, but I could sure use some help with like some of the things, especially as we've had to tighten our belts this year. You can buy me a cup of coffee where your donation goes directly to support us. It comes in just like $5 increments. Uh, it's like a one-time thing. I think you can subscribe, but if you just want to donate $5, if you want to donate $10, $15, That'd be awesome. Buy me a cup of coffee. Thank you so much for listening. You're the best. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.